If you know me, you know I'm, I'm kind of a, a media hound. Like I love reading things. I love, you know, looking at different reportings and different things like that. So in 2016, there was an article that came out. It was a guy, um, a Harvard public health professor, teamed up with a USA Today reporter, and they wrote an article. What they had seemed to stumble on was a miraculous, potentially powerful miracle drug that they were reporting on. Again, this is in USA Today. And so they'd been researching it and they, and they wanted to get the news out about it. And so they started the piece off and here's what they said. This is the very first line. Go back to the slide before we jumped the shark there a little bit. If one could conceive a single elixir to improve the physical and mental health of millions of Americans at no personal cost, what value would society place on it? If you could come up with a single elixir to improve the physical and mental health of millions of Americans, at no personal cost, what value would society pace on that? They go on to say, uh, going a little bit further, that if all the research, all the data conclusively showed that if you consume this drug one time per week, one time per week, that your, the, the mortality rates over a 15-year span would drop between 20 and 30 percent, like, what would we do with that information? All right, now relax, it's not another vaccine. Bill Gates is not involved in this whole thing, right? As far as we know. Um, but it is an interesting question. And so this is where the, the headline that we actually was on there. So go ahead and throw that up. USA Today, 2016, religion may be a miracle drug. They're finding out. And everybody was astonished by this when they started poking around. And, and, you know, if you're a nerd like me, you're kind of poking holes in this. Is this, is this correlation? Is it causation? Like, what, what is it? And, and my question would be, who cares? Who cares? Because when you look at the data, what the research has found is that church people, people that go to church regularly, are more optimistic Overall, they have significantly less depression, lower suicide, lower substance abuse. There's a greater social support network. They have higher life satisfaction. They're more involved in volunteering and civic work. And they have happier kids. They have happier kids. That's just stats. It's what all the research tells us. But here's the caveat, okay? There's one caveat in all of this. And that caveat is... Jesus has to be central. The caveat is this is people who worship regularly together. It's people who are praying often daily. And it's people who read their Bibles. Like this is what, again, the data shows us. People who are really about Jesus, they just, the numbers go way, way up. Their, their, their faith is central to their lives. They, they find their identity as a people belonging to God, right? They live with Jesus as their authority, their source of authority. And then they find their confidence, not in all the stuff that they're accomplishing or what they have in the bank account. They find their confidence in who they belong to. That's the central piece of this. Their authority, their identity, their confidence comes from Jesus. And if you think about it, it really is a little bit of what Jesus said. He said, look, if you seek first the kingdom, all the other stuff that you worry about, that's just going to be added to you. Right? We've, we've heard a lot of other statistics out there about this. You know, they always say that the divorce rate inside the church is the same as the divorce rate outside the church. It's about 50%. 
It's actually not true. What they found is that the divorce rate among people who claim to be Christian is 50%, same as the culture. It's, I think culture is a little bit higher. What they found was people that regularly attended church, people that were regularly focusing on Jesus, praying, reading their Bible, that that number drops over 20 points. Over 20 points. That the marriages are more stable. That there's a stronger sense of support. And people feel more satisfied in their life. I think that's incredible. You know, somebody who's a nerd for some of this data stuff, like just the impact that that has. It is a miracle drug. What we are doing here is a miracle drug if we take it seriously, if it becomes central to our lives. We're in the middle of a series right now. We're uh, in the book of Philippians. Every summer we just take a book and we kind of just go, God, what do you want to say to us? And so this summer we're looking at the book of Philippians. We're calling it interwoven because there's an aspect of community or we, start, we call communitas, this community with a purpose that, that happens. It's all through the book of Philippians where Paul is making the case that when you do this stuff together, it makes a difference. Lives are changed. The world is impacted. And so he's been encouraging the Philippians. He's been making this case that Jesus and the gospel are central. It's just true. Whether or not we believe it or live like it, it's true. Jesus is central to the whole structure of the universe, right? So he goes and he's talking to the whole church. He's going, look, here's the deal. Since that is true, since this gospel is true, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of it, worthy of the gospel. Pray He prays love would abound in the community, in the communitas at Philippi. He goes on and he says, I want you to live with a humility and a compassion that just marks your relationships, that grace and joy just overflow out of you to the world around you. That's what his prayer is for them. In fact, he says, your attitude, this is chapter two, your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus who didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He served. He loved unconditionally. He overflowed with humility and compassion and joy. And he says, if you do that, the end of chapter two, then you will shine like stars in the universe. That's how you were designed, to shine like stars in the universe. When Jesus is at the center, when everything revolves around him, when he is both our source of identity, our source of authority, and our source of confidence. Like, we'll shine. So we're going to pick this up. Again, this is in Philippians 3. Now we're starting chapter 3. And here's what he says in chapter 3. So he's just made that case about keeping Jesus at the center and humility and shining like stars. And he goes, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again as a safeguard for you. So watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, these mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship God by his spirit, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though, like, here's the deal. I myself have reasons to be confident. If someone else thinks that they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I got more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. I've got all the stats. I've got all the monikers. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law, a Pharisee. I knew it all. As for zeal, man, I was killing it. Literally persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, I was faultless. I had everything 
cultural Judaism could offer. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's drawn a line in the sand here. He is getting serious about Jesus. He's going, everything else is a loss compared to knowing Jesus. All the other things we're chasing, all the other measuring sticks, all of the other righteousness, our performance levels, our qualifications, the letters after our names, the numbers in our bank accounts. He says all of those things that we naturally, naturally put our identity in, all of those things that we naturally let have authority in our lives, all of those things that we put our confidence, our trust, our faith in, he says, I just count all of those as a loss, including myself. When Paul talks about the flesh there, what he's talking about is this idea of human ability and, and our accomplishment. Human ability and accomplishment. What is possible in the natural? He goes, even that, I, I don't put any confidence in it. I've got it, but I don't put any confidence in it. It doesn't lead to life. And he's reminding them, he goes, look, your identity, your authority, your confidence is in Jesus. Don't forget it. I don't mind reminding you of this because it's a safeguard for you. Because I know that there's a ton of stuff that will distract you, will take you off track. And here's what's remarkable about this, is what Paul's making this case 2,000 years ago. And even in a culture that is uh, moving towards being incredibly secular, even in that culture, what we're seeing, what we're seeing is that he's right. That we can count all that stuff a loss. As long as we have Jesus, there's a gain. It's a net gain. It doesn't mean that our life is easy. It doesn't mean that it, it, we get everything that we want, that would actually be the opposite. That would be flesh. He says, your, your life will be changed. You'll be transformed. You will be different and you will shine like stars. Just make Jesus central. He goes, again, we're just going to walk through this passage together because there's so much in here. But starting there in the first verse, he says, further brothers and sisters, rejoice. But don't just rejoice. Don't just live to be happy. Don't just live to have joy. He says, no, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write this to you over and over again. I'll tell you again and again and again. It's a safeguard for you. We have so many things that distract us in our world from this central truth. And Paul's going, yeah, I get it. So I'm just going to write it again so that you remember because I know that there's stuff that's pulling you away from this central truth. I don't mind telling you it again. Rejoice in the Lord. There's good things. But then on the other side, there's cultural pressures to conform, to do things differently than the way that God prescribes them. We have an enemy who is after us. Even people in the church, we have a tendency, us church people, to make this faith of ours about 
rules and regulations and getting it right and thinking somehow that we can earn God's favor or the favor of other people, quite honestly. Make it about rules and judgment instead of living out grace. And this is where it gets interesting, I think, starting in there in verse 2. <laughs> yes. All right, so watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. He is talking about a particular group of people who was very invested in making sure that these new converts to this Christianity thing would still follow all the old rules that were in place. Circumcision, not eating pork, like all of that stuff. They were still under this kind of legalistic mantle. All the rules still applied. And Paul's like, no, 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 no. Like The people that are trying to do that, they're, he does, he's throwing a haymaker here. He's like, don't listen to those people. They will lead you off track. This will become a dead, uh, obedient, obligation-based religion and not a life-giving, indwelling, spirit-filled faith relationship. Just don't get distracted by that. This is who these people are. They want to take you on that course. He goes, that, that ain't us. That's not us. Look at what he says next. He goes, uh, it is we who are the circumcision. It is we who worship God by his spirit. It is we who glory in Christ and who put no confidence in the flesh. Remember, this is who we are. Again, there's three things that he points out here that are so important for us to remember. Just walking through it, he goes, look, we are the circumcision. When he's saying that, don't get lost in all the jargon. What he's saying there is that the, the literal mark of circumcision was what God used in the past. Now, now you have circumcised hearts in your spirit. You have been marked. You have been set apart for Jesus. Your identity is secure. By faith in Jesus, you have been made part of the family of God. It's not an exterior, exterior mark. It is an internal marking now. And it seals you. Your identity is secure in this because of your faith. Not because of how well you perform at religious activities. Not how much you observe all of these different things. And he's basically, though, the we there is so important. Like, it's we, he's saying, who are the circumcision. This is our identity as the people of God. We have got to embrace this, to orient our lives around a corporate identity, something that is bigger than us. Think about in our culture all of the corporate things that we organize our identity around. You just have to say sports. We have raving fanatics who are, name it, Laker fans, Chief fans. Nobody's really a Washington fan anymore, but you, know, you get my point. Like we will rave about those things and we will identify with all of those different sports teams, state pride, national pride. We'll put our identity in those things, our corporate identity, even our political affiliations. Think about where that has put us as a culture right now. One of the heartbreaking things that I've seen over the last couple of years is that the church, there's a growing divide in the church, and that divide is along political lines. And it's heartbreaking. And I have to be honest with you, so much of it that I've seen here at, this, at our church um, is, is not like people being dogmatic, 
red or even dogmatic blue, but it's about these political issues that tend to get their way in and divide us. And, and there are some of those that, and we've made statements about this, that are central to our faith. But the bottom line is, if our identity comes first from a political persuasion, then we have missed it. Paul's saying, that's a distraction. Your identity first and foremost comes because you are of the circumcision. You have been brought near to God. You belong to Jesus. You are this holy nation that was meant to be in this world as a blessing to everybody around you. That is your first and primary identity. It supersedes everything else. It supersedes race. It supersedes politics. It supersedes sexual orientation. It supersedes everything that we tend to divide on. Your identity is in Christ. Don't let that other stuff sneak in and separate you. You, it's we who are the circumcision. It goes, it goes on to say we, it is we who worship God by his spirit. And this is this beautiful orientation. He's going to remember your orientation is one of worship. It is a posture before God. It is an act of getting on your knees and surrendering to one who is sovereign. This is who we are. We have an authority that is above us, that, that we trust, that we believe in, that we let dictate our lives and sit over us, not the other way around. So one, your identity is in Jesus. Two, your authority comes from him. He is your authority. And then the last one is we glory in Christ and not in the flesh. We put no confidence in the flesh. And that word, we glory in Christ, the, another translation says boast. Other translations simply say to put confidence in or to hold your head up high is the literal meaning. And what it means is this is where we place our confidence, our trust, our belief, our value. Not in the flesh, not in human origin accomplishment, not in the stuff that we have or the, the ability to accomplish stuff, not what we have done, but what Jesus has done for us. And then he goes on, he goes, look, I've got all the credentials. We said that before. He's listing them out because he's directly opposing a group of people who are coming in and saying, well, we know more than you do. Or we know more than Paul does. And they're trying to lead people off. Paul's like, I used to stand in all of those things. Though you, they used to be the foundation of my life, the source of my identity. They used to have authority, and they used to be my confidence. But now, none of that matters. And he goes right on to say there in the very next uh, phrase, go ahead and throw verses 3 through 7 up there. Let's move on to the next one. But whatever was the gain for me, I now consider a loss for the sake of Christ. Like, it just doesn't matter anymore. My identity, my authority, my confidence, it used to be in the flesh, but now, now, I've traded that in. Now all of it belongs to Jesus. He is my authority. He is my identity. He is my confidence. That's just the, the place that I live from. I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, literally, the Lord of me, my boss, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish. And here's the reason, that I may gain Christ and be found him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but through faith in Christ. Again, this is just the beautiful picture that Paul is painting here is that he wants Jesus more than anything else. The term there, the loss and gain structure, is an old rabbinic structure, and it's borrowed from the mercantile world. Basically what it means is I'm trading that which is good for that which is absolutely, categorically better. I'm trading that which is good, it's not that it's terrible, for that which is categorically better. That I may gain Christ and be found in him. And so the question for us is, is that true for us? Are we willing to trade that which is good, all the things that we find our identity, that have authority in our lives, that we place our confidence, are we willing to trade all of that for Jesus? It's kind of a hard question to wrestle with. As a staff, we were talking about this and just going, am I really willing to trade it all? All the good stuff that I've got going on in my life, all the places that I love and search out and how, you know, am I really, really, really willing to lay that down because I believe, I believe that Jesus is so much better. The truth is we have just all these amazing things in the world. We do. All of this stuff. But how does it compare in your mind to knowing Jesus? Anyway, I think we just have, we have so many things. We're missing a conviction in our world. We've sort of anesthetized ourselves where it feels like we actually have more to lose by following Jesus, by doing what this book says and adhering to the stuff that's in here. It feels like that's actually a loss, that if we were following Jesus, somehow there's more of a cost to that than there is a gain. And Paul's just reminding us. He's saying, look, I'll tell you again. This is for your safeguard. I will tell you this again. That's backwards. We, this is the thing. For us as the church, especially in our day and age, we need to regain confidence in Jesus. We need to regain confidence in this way of life that we have, that God has handed down to us and invited us into, that it is, while there's a lot of good stuff in the world where that conflicts and, and contrasts with the way that God prescribes, we've got to regain confidence in the way that God prescribes us to live and begin to say, I count all of this as a loss. I'm not, it's good, but man, this is so much better. Jesus is so much better. Again, he says, seek first the kingdom. All that other stuff will be added to you. He says, look, whoever has given up in my, for my name in this life will get a hundred times more and in the next life, eternal life. It's interesting, back to the headline about how things work out. There was another article that came out, and here's just what it says. It says, the article starts by noting that there's this real lack of confidence in the church. And, and, and some of that's for good reason. There's abuses that have happened. There's, people have always not handled this thing well. But here's what the statistics tell us about perception and reality. The first perception is that Christians are not really pro-life. They're just pro-birth, all right? Christians are not really pro-life. They're just pro-birth. Here's the reality. And I'm sure you've heard that line, and especially lately, right? Like, this is all over the place. Did you know Christian, church-going conservative Christians are uh, two and a half times more likely to adopt children 
than the general public. Did you know that? We are two and a half times more likely. When Jen and I were doing training for foster care uh, in DSS, that's one of the things that we noticed was that it was all church people. There were some exceptions. But I mean 80, 90% church people. There's some beauty. There's a lot of beauty in that. People putting Jesus first. That's the mission. Perception number two, Christians are sexually repressive and anti-sex and foster a toxic purity culture. Heard that before? Here's the truth. This is interesting. Church-going conservative Christians are the category with the most fulfilling sex lives in America. I didn't write this. It turns out, and it's actually middle-aged, church-going conservative Christians. <laughs> I don't care if you're conservative, I'm just saying. I loved reading that. I loved reading that. Turns out that, there's a high, that a high value of fidelity in marriage creates a liberating environment to enjoy sex. Who knew? It's crazy talk. Next one. Uh, Christianity is emotionally repressive and has a negative effect on mental health. Again, the data is in our favor. Church attendance is highly correlated with less depression, suicide, less substance abuse, greater social support, higher life satisfaction, all of that stuff that I said before. In fact, the regular church-going population uh, was the only population segment whose mental health actually got better during the pandemic. Is that not crazy? Contrast that, and I'm not, you know, again, I felt like we handled the whole pandemic thing pretty well. But what was the dominant narrative from the culture towards the church during the pandemic? Don't go to church. Don't go to church. Now, some of that I can understand, but we have to have our eyes wide open on some of this stuff. Of course not getting together made public health and mental health go down. Of course it did. But we in the church have a recipe for that, a prescription for that. Number four, Christians are more concerned about political power than helping the poor. Uh, while we could do more, people who pray daily and attend church regularly give significantly more to the poor, specifically to the poor, both with their time and with their money. Fact. Last one, Christians are gender oppressive, support an abusive patriarchy, and are toxic to, to women. Fact, while there are some issues that the church has to face up to, the statistics are clear. Church attendance yields the most enjoyable and least abusive relationships for women. In addition, highly religious gender traditional couples experience the highest levels of relational attachment, commitment, satisfaction, and stability. Why am I giving you this information? Because our identity, our authority, and our confidence has to be in Jesus. And we can be confident. This way of life that God has invited us into, this kingdom life, notice all of that was just not for our benefit. A lot of it was for the benefit of the culture around us. Adopting kids, giving to the poor, being present, civic-minded, volunteerism. A lot of this stuff was not just for me. It was for the world. We have got to recover our confidence in this way of life and count all the other stuff a loss. See, 
Paul goes on to complete the whole thing. Like he, and again, he's saying this again for our benefit, that we would gain Christ. Let's put this back up there. That we would gain Christ, meaning that we would live under the banner of Jesus, that we would trade any identity that competes with our identity as followers of Jesus. We would trade that in to be known primarily as those who follow Jesus. Second thing, to be found in Christ. The word Christ there is kyrios, and it means, just like he says, my Lord, it's the Lord of me, that he is my authority. That when I make decisions, when I have my actions, when I live this life out, it is under the influence and the authority of Jesus. The influence and the authority of Jesus. I will be found in and under him. And lastly, we'll experience Christ that we will, to, and what it says to know Christ. But that word know, it really means to like experience, to know at an intimate and a deep level. We're walking with him where the Holy Spirit is speaking to us, where we're hearing it. We are seeing the power of the resurrection in our lives. More experience, here's the key. The more we experience Jesus, the more confidence it births in us. We will see it. His life, his death, his resurrection lived out from us. Paul's just completing the same picture that he started in the first section. We are the circumcision. It is we who worship. And we put no confidence in the flesh because we glory in Christ. And then he comes back around and he goes, we want to be, our true identity is in Jesus. We want to be found under the influence and the authority of Jesus. And then we want to experience, we want to know, we want to live this power out. This is who we are. I'm going to move from having all of those things, identity, authority, and confidence in the flesh, to having it be in Jesus above everything else. So we're going to land the plane. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? Because as a church, we have been invited into something bigger. And as the world starts to spin more and more and it feels like it's out of control, when it feels like it's out of control, we have this confidence. Psalm 27, I'm still confident of this, that I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. In all my counseling and all the people that I've been talking to a lot lately, Psalm 125, 1 and 2 has just come up over and over and over again. And here's the picture that it paints. Those who trust, those who have confidence, whose identity, whose authority, and whose confidence is in Jesus, they're like a mountain. They're like Mount Zion. It cannot be moved or shaken, but remains forever. As the mountain surrounds Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people for this time and forever. Again, we don't even have to move a whole lot in the world that we live in now. As the people of God, God's saying, you will be like a mountain that cannot be moved or shaken. There will be all kinds of weather that comes against it. There will be all kinds of people that try to tear it down. But you, as the people of God, are a mountain in the middle of the storm. Those who trust in the Lord are like a mountain. It cannot be moved or or shaken. And the second part of that is that we cannot do this alone. And we so tend to think in our day and age that we can be mountains on our own, that that's a personal application. Really what he's saying there in the second passage, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds who? His people, us together. We need each other 
Because to stand with that kind of confidence, to live with this identity, to have an authority over us that is different from the world, we will need to be encouraging one another all the more as we see the day approaching. We will need to be putting wind in each other's sails. We will need to be encouraging and calling each other out to a higher standard, remembering that we can count all this as a loss because we can gain Jesus and be found in him. Our full life, our whole life. So again, the question for us is, where is your authority? Where's your identity? And then where's your confidence? Who is your authority? What voices have authority in your life that you're listening to more than Jesus? Will you count those a loss compared to what God is speaking into your heart? Who is your authority? Are we just following the ways of the world or are we going to take what God says in this book and to us seriously and have that be our guide, our authority? And third one is, we can just go live this with confidence. Boldly going, listen, this is where I belong. I don't have to move. I don't have to move or be shaken because I know whose I am. I know where my identity is. I know where my authority is and I know where my confidence lies. Let me stand with me, would you? We're going to pray that this would be more true, more and more true of us. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Just take a moment, and if one of those things spoke to you where you're like, yeah, I have been looking to other things for my identity. I have been placing authority in different voices, or I have had confidence not in Jesus but in other things. Just take a moment and confess those to God. Let him have them. Listen, we're, when you read the scriptures over and over again, this is the message because, Jesus, you are so intent on knowing our struggle and walking with us in the process. And so you, God, in your grace, in your mercy, come alongside of us and just remind us of the places that we can count all that stuff as a loss so that we may find you and be found in you. So just lift those up to him. Father, as we bring these to you, we pray that you would be our source of identity. Like Paul, that we would count everything a loss compared to knowing you, Jesus. That we would trust your instruction, your compassion, your care for us more than we would trust anything else. Father, conform us to the image of your Son. even when our world seems to fall apart, Lord, that you are reminding us that we have within us this power that is not of us. It's, it's of you. Even when we share in the fellowship of your sufferings, we are more than conquerors. Jesus, thank you for this invitation, for this life that you call us to. May it be more and more true of us that we are the people of God.